Hey, welcome back to the Female Founder World Podcast. It's Jasmine. I'm the host of the show and the creator of the Female Founder World Universe. Before we get into this episode with the founder of Soul Cycle, Julie Rice, I want to let you know about Female Founder World Summit on Saturday, 9th of December in New York. Tickets are on sale now. And they're actually moving very, very quickly. We do have a handful left, but honestly, if this is on your vision board for 2023, make sure that you grab your spot now because it is moving quick. Female Founder World Summit is the end of year party for all the entrepreneurial girls who don't usually get that end of year office party because we're building businesses, we're self-employed and maybe we don't even have an office. We have speakers and live mentorship sessions with the founders of SoulCycle, like Julie, who you're hearing from today on the show. You're also going to hear from the founder of Poppy, which is one of the fastest growing beverage companies in the US and literally started from the founder's kitchen. Little Words Project, which was bootstrapped to 20 million in annual revenue, half days and more incredible female founders. We're going to have a wine bar by Nomadica, brand activations, a little mini relaxation station from within incredible gift bags that are worth more than what your ticket costs. So even if you just turn up and grab your gift bag, you've already made your money back. And of course, a room filled with your future business besties. There will be vibes, a DJ, and just a really good time. And honestly, if you've been listening to the podcast, if you're part of our group chat, or you've come to any of the workshops, I know that you have leveled up in some way this year. And I think that that really deserves celebrating. Head to femalefounderworld.com to get your ticket Our events always sell out, so make sure you get onto this one today. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Julie Rice, welcome to Female Founder World. It is so good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I am kind of pinching myself. I feel like you're one of those founders that everyone knows what you've built and everyone knows kind of who you are. You have created something that is so much bigger than just you. And I'm excited to get into it and to share all of these lessons that you've had over many years of building incredible companies. For people who don't know you, what have you built? I'm Julie Rice. I'm the co-founder of SoulCycle. And after that, I did a brief stint at WeWork. I was a partner there for a few years. I didn't know that. I was. And now I have a new startup called Peoplehood. I'm going to get into the peoplehood story in a second, but the first thing I just have to ask is why start another company after you have, you know, already built something that has been so successful? What made you think, okay, I'm going to get on this train again and do this all over again? I'm tired thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Elizabeth and I build things that we want to see in the world. Mm. We are really the users of the products that we build. I'm not somebody who, you know, looks at the landscape of what's trending in consumerism and thinks, oh, that's something that's trending. I should build that because, you know, there's an opportunity to make money. Elizabeth and I really build things that we need, that we want to use, that we feel like we can be part of a community of. And so I, I really do build these things for me. And, you know, success for me has always been a byproduct of building things that I wanted to go to. And so I really saw something that didn't exist in the world and I felt like I'd give it another try. And here we are. Like we said, I want to talk about peoplehood in a minute because I think what you're doing is very needed and very important. But we need to, to get to peoplehood, we need to understand the soul cycle journey. And oh my God, what a story, what a story you guys have. I want to know how you met 
your co-founder, Elizabeth, and how things got off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So before SoulCycle, I had an entirely different life. I lived in Los Angeles. I was a talent agent. I have loved actors since I'm the entertainment business, theater. I was a real theater kid. I have just loved all and all of everything about production. And so after college, I moved to LA. I was fairly successful in the movie business. At about age 30, I decided I wanted to move home. And I came back to New York. And one thing that I noticed was that there was no exercise like what I had experienced in Los Angeles, which was, you know, exercise was social. I would go hiking with my friends. I would go biking by the beach. It was something that you did to make yourself feel better. It was a way to release stress. It was really just a part of a lifestyle that had not yet made its way to New York City. And I was taking a class at a gym in New York, and I was taking a class with a teacher, and I kept saying to her, this could be different. This could be better. It could be social. It could be fun. There could be a brand around it. Mm. And one day she said to me, you know, there's a woman that takes a class of mine at another gym. You should meet her. She said she wants to invest in starting a fitness business. And it was crazy. Elizabeth and I met for lunch. We met at the Soho House. It was January. And we had this amazing lunch. And the truth is, I'm sorry that Elizabeth isn't here, but if you met her, we're really very different. But we sat down and we started talking and we we just had a very common vision. We were very passionate about the same thing. She had just moved from Colorado to the city at a very similar timeline as I had. Also looking for hiking and the sociability of exercise. And I left lunch that day. And as I got into my cab, my cell phone rang and she said, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to research real estate and you're going to look for towels and we're going to meet on Thursday. <laughs> And sure enough, on Thursday, she called me and she had found an old dance studio on Craigslist. Does Craigslist even still exist? I didn't even know. I think so. It certainly is not a place that I would ever look for anything no. anymore. But she had found this old dance studio on Craigslist. It was in the rear lobby of a building. It was 1,300 square feet. I met her there. It looked fine to us. We went across the street to a Starbucks. We wrote our business model on the back of a napkin. And we thought if we saw 100 people a day at $27 a bike, we would be able to keep the lights on. We'd be able to pay for the bikes, which you rent. And we also both had young babies at the time and we needed to pay for some childcare if we were going to go try to start a new business. And that's what we did. What was the vision in the early days? Did you know that SoulCycle was going to become SoulCycle or were you creating a studio? Oh, we were creating a studio. I, I just remember thinking like it was my job to make sure that at least 75 people got mm -hmm. on bikes a day and I just couldn't go home until that happened. <laughs> and if I had to walk up and down Broadway or go hand out flyers to doormen, that is what I did. And one of the things that I, I in retrospect, I really look at and I think it's actually hard as a second time founder is I, I really think that when you're building a business, Thinking about how you make one customer an evangelist is the way you do it. It's mm. just, it is that feeling of not just product market fit, but it's that feeling of really making somebody feel like not only is the product great, but that they matter to the business. And in retrospect, they really did. We were in the rear lobby of a building. We had no sign. Nobody could find us. There was no boutique fitness. There was no category. When people used to call the front desk and I would tell them that they had to pay $27 for a spin class, they would say to me, but that's included in my gym membership. Mm. 
And so we had to love people so much that they wanted to come back. And I really try to keep that in mind the second time around, just really thinking about just focusing on making one customer not just happy, but so happy that they have to tell a friend. Uh, I had no aspirations to create, you know, a hundred spin studios. It was really about how do I make this one place the best place. Okay, so how do you do that? I am interested in how you get those first people in the door. You did it with SoulCycle and now you're doing it again with this new business, Peoplehood. How do you get those first people through the door? Obviously, you have a bit more of an advantage now in that you have more resources, you have a name, you know, people want to hear from you and what you're building. But I think that there's a lot of lessons there for folks who are not just building bricks and mortar businesses, but trying to get their product in front of people. Like what what's working? What works then and what works now? Look, I have always been a believer in community building mm -hmm. and building relationships. I think that we can all see that we can spend a lot of money on customer acquisition, but that doesn't always translate to retention. And, you know, we can just con continue to churn and churn and churn. Yep. But realistically, if we all doubled down and really invested in, you know, turning our customers into communities, I, I do believe that is the way that you get people to stay and you create a lifetime value of a customer because a customer feels valued. And that's really what we did in the beginning. In the beginning, we just became part of the community. You know, we were at every street fair handing out flyers. We were at the local public school offering them, you know, free classes for all the moms, seeing if the PA wanted to organize a fundraiser and just use our space. We allowed everyone that walked through the door to use the space to for whatever, you know, charities or philanthropies were important to them. And then a lot of it also really came down to training our employees to be hospitalitarians, right? Training and building community has always been such an important part of the ethos of everything that Elizabeth and I build and really investing in teaching people how to treat each other like a community and how to treat customers like a community. I'm interested in what that turning point was for you at SoulCycle when you knew that this was going to be something that mm -hmm. was a lot bigger than just this, you know, single studio yeah. and that you kind of knew that you were onto something. Was it, you know, a second location? Was it a piece of feedback? Like how do you know that you're at this inflection point that things are going to snowball? You know, I can actually tell you, I can, I can think of each milestone along the way and I can tell you a couple of them because they're so memorable. And, you know, I remember sitting in the rear lobby with nobody coming in, with no sign. In fact, we actually bought a rickshaw on eBay and we we painted it yellow and silver and we put a sign on the back of it that said Soul Cycle with an arrow this way. And every day we would get a ticket from the community board for $65. So eventually I learned the traffic patterns because mm. we didn't have $65 to spend. And so I would put it out there like on Saturday mornings because a lot of people would see it. <laughs> But I will say, I will never forget the day that our first class sold out. I remember closing the door to the studio and there were 35 people on bikes. And I thought, wow, yeah, like the room is full. And I closed the door and 35 people were on the bikes and it was amazing. And I will say, you know, in the category of charmed life, we started to cash flow after six months. We became you know, profitable. Amazing. We started the business for $250,000. Mm. We built it out of Ikea and we rented bikes. And so it was really, it was a different time. But then, you know, you start to sell out classes and 
actually what wound up happening was, you know, the supply, you know, the supply became less than the demand. All of a sudden we started to sell out classes and sell out classes and we could not get another space. It was 2007, 2006, 2007. And at the time, remember, New York City wanted to rent retail space to Banana Republic, to Dwayne Reed, to Chase Bank. You know, two women with a business that was making a lot of cash was not exactly the most desirable thing. Anyway, we decided that we were going to open a summer location in the Hamptons. And I had called Hamptons Magazine to see how much it would take to put an ad in the 4th of July issue. And they told me the price. And I said to Elizabeth, listen, people don't understand this business one-dimensionally. Like an ad isn't even going to do anything. Mm. We should go out to the beach, see if we can find a space. And if we can run a summer studio just for break-even, just for marketing, we should do it. And we did. And we went and we opened the barn, which has become like somewhat legendary out in, in Bridgehampton. And another milestone was we came back from that summer and all of a sudden there were town cars lined up and down the block outside the studio in the morning. And we knew we had gone from being like a great full neighborhood business to becoming like a citywide thing. People were coming from all over. It was like it was a crazy thing. And then we started crashing servers on Monday for sign up. You know, we had one developer who built us this little you know, sign up website, which by the way, at the time, nobody had digital signups. You used to go to your gym an hour before spin class, sign up on paper, wait the hour. So for us, like our (laughs) online reservation system was revolutionary. Anyway, we started to crash servers on Monday. That was another milestone. The site could not take the traffic. And then the last milestone that I will tell you about was we had opened, you know, a bunch of studios in New York City, a couple in the suburbs around New York, but we had still only opened studios that Elizabeth and I could physically touch. You know, I would go and merchandise every studio. Elizabeth would go and, you know, stand behind the front desk. And I remember people always saying to me, you know, that's great as long as you can be there, but how are you going to scale human experience? Oh my you know, gosh, question of my life right now. Right. How are you going to scale, you know, what people feel? Mm. And I will never forget, we opened our West Hollywood location and Elizabeth and I went and we cut the ribbon. And then a year later we went back and we rode in the class and afterwards we went into the lobby. And just like in all of the New York studios, people started to pull me aside and say, you know, I came because I wanted to lose a couple of pounds, but you should see what this has done for my marriage. Or Mm. I came because my doctor said I needed better cardiovascular health, but this gave me the confidence to leave my job. And it was the exact same things that people were saying in the lobbies in New York City, in Connecticut, in Scarsdale, all the places that I would go once a week and visit. And I hadn't really touched LA. I mean, we'd done a lot of training, of course. We'd sent out a home team to open it up. But it was all I knew then that if we invested in people, both in our community, our instructors, and our front desk employees, that we were going to be able to scale human experience. That's incredible. I want to know how you do that. You say invest in invest in people. What does that look like to equip someone to go and do the thing that you do? How do you mm-hmm. how do you outsource and externalize that? I think a lot of people, you get to an inflection point in any business where you're like, I need to hand over this thing, otherwise it can't grow. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, I would say that if I looked at the landscape of direct-to-consumer businesses out there, I have to say that I think people really underestimate the time and money 
that actually training human beings yes. takes. You know, people would come to SoulCycle and say, this is so amazing. Everyone here is so great. I mean, that did not just happen. You know, every one of those people that was so great was really invested in, in a very real way. I would say the biggest cost that we had at SoulCycle was the money that we spent investing in people. And it was well worth it because people were our product. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the DNA of businesses, I always think comes from the founders, right? You know, founders make instinctual choices. I think businesses are really reflections of the values and principles of their founders. Elizabeth and I, two female leaders in a time when, by the way, there were not that many female entrepreneurs or CEOs. We have four daughters between us. And our litmus wow. test for the business, we used to say when we would make choices, is this a place we would want our daughters to work? Mm. And that's how we made every decision. Is this, is this the way I would treat a friend? Is this the way I would want my daughter to be treated? And so first, I think you take that DNA. But then the question is, how do you scale the DNA of what decision I might make at the front desk. So we were lucky enough very early on to find a chief culture officer. She was actually a customer. She came to me one day after class and said, I'd like to work here. We said, I, we have no money. The only people that work here are me and Elizabeth. She said, maybe we can trade some classes. Anyway, I always say, I never remember the day that Amy got her first paycheck, but we've been working together ever since. And Amy would run around with a notebook and she would codify these decisions. And ultimately, after a decade, we had a hundred different, you know, units of education that we taught at SoulCycle University, wow. which was the entire basement of our HQ. We had fake front desks and everybody would learn everything from history of the brand, how to be a culture of yes. Every employee that started working at SoulCycle worked for at least two weeks at the front desk, whether you were the CFO or whether you were mm. the bike maintenance person. Uh, because the truth is we all would say that you learn more by being in your business for, you know, for two weeks than you do being at your desk for two months. And that is really the truth about it. And then on top of it, besides from just training, you know, people to, you know, be hospitalitarians, Elizabeth and I did a lot of work on our own partnership and relationship as the years progressed. Very early on, we found a coach. We started to work with her. And we really learned how to communicate with each other, how to lead. And as we would be learning these lessons, we would teach them to the rest of our employees. And so ultimately, we became a culture of, you know, transparent communication. We became a culture where giving each other feedback became the norm. And so because people were able to communicate with each other so well internally and because they were so happy because of it, it was kind of like our internal culture was reflected in the way that the customers felt about the business, which I think is really true. I've interviewed honestly thousands of founders now and, and I see this pattern where the the founders that seem to build these big businesses that expand so much beyond just, you know, their initial vision are the ones that have continued to invest in themselves and are really reflective and have up-leveled in that way. I'd love to know like what some of those specific things are that you learned through that coach. Like how did you learn to have conversations with feedback? Totally. And actually it's a great segue into peoplehood because mm. so much of what we're actually teaching at peoplehood is what Elizabeth and I learned ourselves in those sessions. So the truth is, 
you know, the spoiler alert is the main skill that you learn in any sort of a coaching session or the ones that we did with each other, with another person. I mean, two founders is it, you know, two CEOs is a difficult thing. We really learned how to listen to each other. Mm. Elizabeth and I, when we have differences, when we have decisions to make, we usually do those meetings in two parts. We come to the table, usually our coach is there. And we each bring kind of the way that we feel about it. And one person talks and another person listens. And then the other person talks and another person listens. And then we kind of wrap up for the day. Because especially when there's conflict or two points of view, it is very hard to pause and absorb somebody else's perspective in that moment, you know, to really understand somebody else's world, somebody else's story, why somebody else thinks, you know, something mm. different than what you are thinking is correct. And then we usually come back the next day or a few days later. And I have to tell you that like five out of six times we come back to the table and Elizabeth will say, you know what? I totally see it your way. That's mm. the way we should do it. And then I'll come and say the exact same thing. I see it your way. But I actually think that's one of the things that's made us extremely successful because, you know, we are very different people. And we do see things in very different ways. And when you are forced to absorb somebody else's opinion rather than create this whole insular world where you only see one thing one way, I do think it's a real recipe for success, especially if you have a partner or somebody that you respect in that way. Uh, I do the same thing in my marriage. Mm. My husband and I have really learned to communicate in this very same way. And I will say that it has been transformative for us because my husband and I are also different and we, we parent differently and we spend our time differently. And I do think that this ability to take in another human being's perspective and integrate it into your own, when you talk about leveling up or growing, you know, I would credit Elizabeth and my husband to being the two people that have created the most the most growth for me as an adult because of the way that I have sort of been forced to learn how to communicate and take in their worldviews, they've really expanded mine. That's such good advice. I have a very quick message from our sponsor. And honestly, we never do ad breaks on the show because I am just really picky about the sponsors that we work with and who we want to promote. We've partnered with folks like Shopify, TikTok for Business, just guys that we know are really going to help grow your business. And honestly, we've turned down a lot of the rest because we want to make sure that the people that we are recommending to you, our business bestie community, are going to help you grow your business and that they're the best in the category. So, all that to say, I'm about to tell you all about AMP, the folks behind a few of our favorite Shopify apps for e-commerce, because honestly, they're brilliant and their apps connect to each other within Shopify, which just makes your life so much easier. AMP is working with Female Founder World to co-host our group business coaching call series. It's happening right now. It is free thanks to their support. And we're able to offer live mentorship calls with the founders of companies like Crown Affair, Smart Suites, 54 Thrones, Bala, and Ceremonia. And you can sign up at the link in the show notes right now. For those of you who aren't familiar with AMP, they are loved and trusted by over 20,000 e-commerce brands. They create e-commerce app solutions that are interconnected, so no more random Shopify apps that don't sync up. And I'll tell you a little bit about one of my personal favorite apps that they have called Lifetimely. 
So just picture it's the end of a long day running your biz and you're trying to get your P&L report. You've got your cost of goods sold open on one spreadsheet. Your meta ad costs are on a second. Google ads are somewhere else. And then your shipping costs are on an app somewhere on your phone. Honestly, it is hard enough to keep track of all your costs, but keeping your P&L spreadsheet updated daily with all of these costs is time consuming and honestly super prone to making mistakes and human error. With Lifetimely by AMP, you get an automated accurate p sent to your inbox each day. It integrates with every major ad platform so you can easily keep track of your return on ad spend. And you can also add your shipping cost, cost of goods, and any other recurring or custom costs to the app. Lifetimely by AMP gives e-commerce brands enterprise-level reporting. You can install Lifetimely by AMP now on the Shopify app store. Okay, let's get back into the show. I have one more question about the soul cycle journey and then I want to understand how things are getting started with peoplehood and your vision there. The Equinox Partnership, how did that come about and how did that change your world? Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, Elizabeth and I were like two women who started this thing in the rear lobby of a building. (laughs) We didn't know anything about it. I mean, neither of us ever taught a spin class in our whole life. But, you know, we understood brand, mm-hmm. we understood people, we understood hospitality, and all of a sudden, you know, SoulCycle started to get like all this buzz in New York City. And so Equinox called us pretty early on, their CEO called us, I guess, you know, he'd been hearing a lot, we'd been making a lot of noise in the space. And we started to have some initial conversations pretty early on, but we weren't quite ready to, you know, sell any of the business yet. And then after we had about seven locations, we began to see that we had created a marketplace and people were coming into that marketplace. We began to see, you know, competitors and, you know, it was just starting to feel like we wanted to grow quickly. We wanted to be first to market. We really felt like we had a right to own that market. And, you know, And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this will, you know, completely identify with this. But one thing I will say as a founder, as a first time founder, and also as a female founder, I think there's a lot of times that you think that other people know how to do it the right way. Mm. You know, we doubt that our instincts that have taken us so far, the very same instincts that have actually led us to whatever success we have in the first place, all of a sudden we think somebody else, there must be real grownups in the room. Somebody else must really know how to do this, right? In retrospect, it's kind of funny. I think, you know, Equinox was best in class. Nobody had ever created a fitness, you know, establishment like they had. We really wanted a win. And so we took them on as partners. And they, you know, they were they were good partners you know for a long time for a long time you know we kind of did what we did and and they helped us in certain areas and that all went really really well and we scaled for quite a while with them and and we were partners for quite a bit and then and then it just felt like you know there were you know we wanted to grow in different ways mm-hmm. and so Elizabeth and I ultimately decided, you know, we we didn't have the same vision for the future of the Mm -hmm. company. And so we decided to part ways. Okay. And so then this takes us to peoplehood. And if somebody I've, I've done one of the gathers and I thought it was incredible. If somebody walks into your space for the first time, what will they experience? Yeah. So if someone walks into peoplehood for the first time, they're going to experience hospitality. Hopefully we're going to make you feel like you matter. You can grab a coffee. 
it's it's kind of a great little retail space in Chelsea. And then we also have our digital gathers, which mm -hmm. feel very similar. They feel like a very safe and cozy space. But you'll come into a gather room and a guide will meet you there. And the guide is a storyteller. They're an empath. They're really there to hold space and keep the structure of the space so everybody feels safe to share. We start with some music and some breath work. There's some group sharing. Then there's some one-on-one -on -one sharing where we practice active listening. And hopefully then there's some sort of a takeaway that you can take into your life, something practical mm -hmm. that you can take out of that room. So, you know, while you're practicing, you know, in our breakouts, we do something we call higher listening. And just like physical fitness, we really believe that listening and empathy are muscles that you need to build. Yeah. If you continue to practice having conversations in a way where you actually take a pause and you think about your response rather than just reacting, mm. eventually you begin to hear people in a different way. They feel received in a different way. And you begin to see the world around you change. And so we have peoplehood where you come with a bunch of strangers. It's time to kind of process your own thoughts, hear other people's stories. You begin to recognize yourself and other people, feel less lonely and, you know, become a better listener. And then we also have couplehood where you can come with a partner or a spouse. And that's really great because, Amazing. you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, my husband and I spend a lot of time together, but we do a lot of talking about who's who's booking plane tickets for yeah. Christmas and who's ordering yeah. the groceries. And so I don't I don't often spend. 15 minutes looking into his eyes, asking him what's keeping him up at night. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I had that conversation. I mean, our baby's keeping us up at night, but. Right. Right. But it's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's really wild how quickly you can, you can connect in a deeper way with mm. somebody, you know. And so, you know, we really believe that this world has become, you know, really isolating. We're post a global pandemic. People are spending more time on their phones, especially mm -hmm. social media all day long. We're more connected and yet we're lonelier than ever. And I would say even more than loneliness, what we're doing by spending so much time on our phones is that we are really stripping our human being skills, you know, our peopling skills yeah. out of our bodies. Uh, I look, I have two children and they have a six year age gap. I have an 18 year old and a 12 year old. And I even look at the difference in the way the two of them communicate. Mm. And it's really staggering, you know, how I remember thinking how horrible my 18 year old was on her, you know, social media all day. And now I look at my 12 year old mm. and think that was nothing. So it's really interesting how our world continues to change. And we're really spinning away from this idea of human connection. And I think we've all seen, you know, the, our Surgeon General put out a massive report this year talking about how loneliness is really becoming an epidemic. There's a lot of conflict in the world. Mm. And we really need to, we really need to practice these skills if we're going to, you know, continue to thrive. Our emotional wellness, our social wellness actually predicts the length and the health of our life more than anything else. Wow. How... <sighs> Once you came, kind of like were forming this idea of, okay, this is this is what I want to do next. How long did that take for it to to materialize into what is a very clear structured product that you're offering in this in in the peoplehood space? How long did that take, and like, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, well, look. You know, it's very intentional. It's not just like you turn up and as a therapist, like it's this beautiful, intentional experience. Definitely. Listen, SoulCycle was architected kind of the same way. I think there's a real art to mm. 
you know, experience design. Yeah. And it's funny because that's probably sort of the theater kid in me. You know, I've watched yeah. so many productions and I used to say at Cycle, it should feel like curtain up when somebody walks in and curtain down when they leave and not just in the room kind of when they cross the threshold. And so we really thought at Peoplehood, first of all, we've been working on the project for over four years. It started before COVID. And then, you know, like many other founders, I'm sure people's products have taken many different forms. We we started workshopping it IRL before COVID. Then during COVID, we, de we developed a little bit of an app. And then as COVID was ending, we realized we needed to have both a digital mm. and an IRL offering. And so we've sort of seen this whole, this whole journey progress. But I do think that, you know, it is one of those things where you really have to think about how you want somebody to, to feel, what you want them to take away. And we have worked with scientists and breathwork specialists and rabbis and priests and therapists wow. and, you know, AA leaders and all different types, authors, all different types of people to really figure out, you know, if we were putting together one hour that was going to help you connect with yourself and learn to connect with other people differently, what would you know, those components look like? And then how do we take you through an emotional journey so that you have an aha moment, so that you feel better when you leave than when mm. you walked in, so that when you go into the world, you have something tangible to take with you. All of those things became really important. And then also, of course, how do you keep the space safe? Mm. You know, who is going to hold that space? You know, you'll notice in the room, our guide always goes first. They yeah. always share first. And by doing that, they sort of permission the whole room to tell a little piece of their story. And so all of those decisions became super intentional. From a marketing perspective, I know that you said that, you know, really building community has been at the core of the way that you've marketed both businesses. But what were some of the, what are some of the really kind of tangible ways that you are getting people into experience peoplehood for the first time? Because it's a very different landscape now to when you first really? started and got traction for Soul Cycle. So I'd love to know what you're doing differently. Yeah. Well, listen, I will say it is a very different landscape. Uh, and it is certainly, it's certainly not easy. You know, there's so much noise in the world. There's so many offerings that are, you know, taking up people's time. And the truth is, is, you know, let's we, we always say that no matter what we're creating, we're still competing with Netflix and Instagram. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter so what true. the product is. So true. Because you're just competing for people's time. Uh, and so for us, we have, again, really focused on um, tapping into existing communities, you know, communities that are already sort of blossoming, but where people may want to get to know each other more, where there are like-minded interests. I think that a lot of the offerings that we've seen are people who are it having some sort of a life transition, mm. whether you're a new mom or a newlywed or new to New York, or you've just gotten divorced, or it's your first year at college. It really feels like, you know, appealing to people who are in moments where they're really trying to move themselves from one place to the next. We have a lot of really interesting, our space in New York is really great. So we have a lot of really interesting events and experts come. So you invite people in to bring their own communities and host events in there and experience what you've, yep. Definitely experts that are talking about topics that are super relevant mm -hmm. and then helping us create conversations around them afterward. Mm. So we've really been trying to plug into, into you know, community and communities to build to build this time around. And how are you thinking about the digital piece of this? I know that you're also offering the digital gathers. What does the digital marketing component look like for you guys now? 
Yeah, digital marketing is, is, has been really interesting. And what I will say is that we have really, we're, you know, it's still such early days. You know, we're yeah. only, we've only been open for about six or seven months. Yeah. And so, you know, really trying to make sure that product market fit digitally is correct before we begin a big digital spend. Loyalty programs, bring a friend programs. Yeah. You know, again, I really do believe sort of in the whole evangelist. If somebody wants to bring a friend, you know your product is working. And so... Digital has also still been a lot of organic. How does it feel different the second time around for you? Six um, months in now compared to six months in with SoulCycle, how does it feel as a founder? I would say it feels harder this time around, really? which is so interesting. You know what's ahead? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think first of all, you know, I think the first time around, your bar is so much lower. Yeah. You know, I think that just, you know, everything was such a thrill. Every person that came in was such a thrill. And not that it isn't now, because still my favorite, absolute favorite moments, I've actually started leading motherhood gathers Ooh. and some female founder gathers. Okay, amazing. And I will say, I love being in the room. I love, I love seeing, you know, like people coming and having those aha moments. I love hearing people's stories. I love watching them in the product. The digital cohorts are also amazing. We are actually offering a cohort right now, you know, finding your true love, you know, mm. and that I've actually been in that, even though I've been married for 20 years, I've been, <laughs> I've been in that just taking the course and it's fantastic. I mean, it's interesting. We've, we've learned to connect digitally so incredibly well post COVID. I will say in some ways the digital gathers are even more intimate than the ones that are in the room. People are really uninhibited when they're in their own rooms and their own pajamas yeah. and they'll, they'll tell you a lot more sometimes. And I will say that it's been, you know, those are my favorite moments. The moments that are tough are the moments when I'm comparing myself to myself. You know, I'm I'm a bit older than I was then. So I'm always sort of double checking myself, like, mm. you know, am, am, am I young enough to do this? Am I current enough oh, to do so this? All the things, yeah. And then, of course, when you when you've been lucky enough to have a giant success, it's really hard not to not to judge yourself and to to feel like, well, it happened after six months last time. Mm -hmm. I've been open for seven mm -hmm. months. What does this mean? <laughs> My husband and I were talking about it the other day, and I, I was saying it would have almost been better, you know, if Soul Cycle was like my third one. Right. Yes. Right? I mean, sequentially, it would have made a lot more sense. But really just trying to keep my head down. And I will say something else that's been really interesting is um, my short experience at WeWork, I really learned how to scale things globally, mm. um, which is also a whole other mind bender. Yeah. And so, you know, when I really go in now, I really try to look down and sort of turn off my peripheral vision and think, you know, one customer, very happy, somebody who comes and gets something out of this that they take into their world and because of it their dinner table becomes a little bit better the you know their team at their office can collaborate differently their marriage is a little bit stronger like i'm really trying to focus on those metrics just to really keep myself in the whole sort of product market fit game which yeah. i know is such early stages yeah. it's hard i mean i have spent the last decade and a half thinking about scale a word I didn't even know when I started SoulCycle, thinking about exit, a word that I didn't even know <laughs> when I started SoulCycle. You know, and to the point of your original question, I, I never really start these things sort of thinking about, you know, sort of the, what is the big financial windfall. Mm. It's really always about if I make a great product, people will come and be happy. That part will happen. What are you 
looking at now that you're thinking, okay, I, I don't want to do this again. This is a mistake that I made the first time around. I don't want to do it again, both for yourself, but also for people who are embarking on this for the first time. And they're kind of like, they don't even know what's ahead. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know if there's an, I don't want to do this again, but I really do think that, you know, as a founder, you really have to know what you're signing up for. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm speaking at business schools or talking to would-be entrepreneurs. And I'm sure that we all look at the entrepreneurs that have had great success and we think, wow, you know, that that's amazing that that happened. But the truth is that I say to everybody, unless it is an idea that wakes you up in the middle of the night, like you're keeping a pad on yeah. the side of your bed, the truth is being an entrepreneur is really hard work in every way, whether it is you know, the beginning, trying to find product market fit, as you scale, managing a team, trying to understand how skill sets shift and different people are now good for different jobs or not suited for different jobs as businesses grow. Then what happens when your business is so successful and you take it to the next place and then the business begins to cannibalize itself and now you don't know how to grow from growing? All of a sudden you were this explosive growth business and now all of a sudden somebody has moved the finish line mm. and going from sort of what was explosive to what now needs to be the next goal seems daunting. I just think that, you know, being a founder is really, uh, it's really a 24 hour thing. And I think it's unrealistic to not think that. And so it's interesting when you talk about second time around, I really, you know, I remind myself of that all the time that sort of a lot of it is in the details. A lot mm. of it is really being in the business. That's another thing I would say, you know, Founders and CEOs have to be in their businesses. If, if you're not a user, you have no idea what's going on in the business. I, I love to ask customers for their feedback. It is the biggest learnings that I can get. If you ask one person and they're nice enough to tell you the truth, you can pretty much know that 50 other people think yeah. the same thing. <laughs> they just weren't brave enough to tell you. Yeah. But I really do think that, you know, something that I really try to remind myself is to be in the business because I would say, you know, after experiencing success, it's easy to create teams and delegate and sit on top of it. But at this part, at this time in the life of this business, it's very important to be in the product. I'd love to just end with a resource recommendation. And sometimes people recommend a podcast, a book. Sometimes it's, you know, something less tangible, a habit or a mindset thing. But just for people who are kind of embarking on this thing that you've been doing now for many years and you think would really help them. Yeah. Look, I would say the transformative thing for me was getting a coach. Mm. And I know that it can be a bit of an investment, but whether you can afford it once a quarter, whether you can afford it twice a year, I do think really having another person there to ask you some questions and give you the time to think about it is really the most helpful thing that I've ever done for myself in business. I am often surprised, especially in a startup or a business that's scaling, we are moving so quickly. One decision ends and the next one begins, you know? And I just think that without having the ability to step away 
It is hard to have new ideas. It's hard to innovate. It's hard to be the leader that you want to yeah. be. It's hard to be the human being that you want to be. And I just, I really do believe that there's no growth without stepping back. I can't tell you how many times a year I have to look at my calendar and say, I am doing this all wrong. Mm. And that's usually after I meet with my coach because I'll realize, gosh, I'm trying to move the business forward by focusing on digital marketing when the truth is like, I need to innovate. Right. If I'm sitting here spending an hour talking about how I'm not happy with this part of the product, then what am I scaling out here? Mm. You know, I need to rejigger my time. And I find that I have those conversations with my coach who's who's been our coach now for gosh, probably about 15 years. But I will say that I do think that if you can find somebody who you feel like is a good fit for you and you can at least do a quarterly check-in, I think it's wildly valuable. That's great advice. I do actually have one more question and that's because you've had such a, such a successful co-founder relationship. How does somebody go about finding a co-founder and what should they be looking for? It's interesting. Something I talk about a lot at Peoplehood is one of the things that made me really understand that people needed relational skills were that my husband and I went to this incredible couples seminar. It was called Getting the Love You Want. And the two, Amazing. the two therapists got up there and they gave us this statistic. They said that first marriages have a 50% divorce rate. Second marriages have a 70% divorce wow. rate. And third marriages have a 90-something percent divorce rate showing you that it has nothing to do with the person that you're choosing. Mm. And it has way more to do about how hard you're willing to learn mm. and work on being in a relationship. And I think it's no different with a co-founder. I think Elizabeth and I are a great fit because we bring actually very different skills. And I would really suggest that. That is one thing if I had to make a suggestion, I'd say choose somebody that's different than you. There are days and there were there are days now and there were days during our soul cycle days where I would just say, oh my God, this is it. Like we're done. Like we crashed this website. And for Elizabeth, that would be no big deal because tech was not a problem right. for her. There would be days that she would come into me and say like, I can't deal with the people anymore. And I would say, I got it. People for me is no problem. And I really feel like we kept each other going. So I would say finding somebody with, with some skills that are different than yours, but then more than that, I would say working on your relationship, investing in it and making sure that you have a commitment to having really good communication. Amazing. Julie, thank you so much for coming on Female Founder World. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Quick shout out to all of our business bestie subscribers. If you are loving this show and you are building a consumer, CPG or e-commerce business, or you're about to build one, this membership will give you access to the people, experiences and the tools that you really need to build your dream business. Head to femalefounderworld.com forward slash subscriber for more.